This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. The best of our work is able to marry the theory of academic practice to financial market reality and to produce thought-leading research. The key goal of this podcast is to bring you the message from these research products in ways that are additive to your thinking and hopefully interesting to listen to. But one of the other things we're increasingly trying to do with this podcast is to have on people who've had long careers in the industry, to talk to them, hopefully learn from their experiences, and to see if we can apply the work they've done over the years to how we think and work in today's markets. Well, this week, we are lucky to be able to kill two or three of those birds with one stone. Our guest is Ramu Tiagarajan, who works as a senior investment advisor for State Street. Ramu and his team produce the kind of thought leadership research that reaches all clients of the firm, not just the markets audience. But his background is super interesting and as expansive, I think, as you can get. He's worked as an accounting professor, a fund manager, a head of quantitative research in both equities and fixed income, which I don't think I've ever seen before. And he's now part of our senior leadership team. Ramu has recently led the publication of a collaborative paper on a topic that is getting a lot of attention, especially in currency markets, this notion of de-dollarization. We've talked about it on the podcast before. We're going to talk about it again today. Ramu, first of all, welcome. But let's start with your experiences. It's a really interesting story, and I wanted to to start there before we got into some of the work on de-dollarization. Thanks for having me. Uh, in terms of background, you know, I'm one of six in, from from a lower middle class family in India, uh, where the only thing that mattered to for survival was education. So uh, I was indoct- indoctrinated in the view that unless you did well in school, uh, it would be hard to survive. So uh, by the age of 25, I had qualified the equivalent of CPA. It's called chartered accountants. There is a chartered accountant. There's a cost accounting exam. And there's also a company secretary. These are all uh, professional uh, accounting qualifications that you could get in India. And I did that and after, my, after my bachelor's. And I was later informed that I was one of the youngest members to have done that. So to me, I was always very curious about uh, electronic you know, EDP auditing. This is a term that is probably most people have not heard of. At that time, EDP auditing was a big thing. And you know, so Illinois Champion-Urbana had a big program. And uh, I said that I should try to learn that. So I applied. I got in. There's a long, long, long story. Uh, some aspects of it quite interesting as to how I got there. But uh, I got a I got a loan from the bank, and uh, I arrived in Champaign Urbana. Uh, a highly qualified accounting professional. But my first job was uh, washing dishes in the Illini Union and uh, shelving books uh, in the in the in the library at three dollars and thirty five cents an hour. Uh, <laughs> So it was a fantastic uh, transition. And then I got my master. I mean, I got my master's in Champaign Urbana. Now, talking about something that I'm currently focused on, and that's inflation, 1982 was when I graduated. Yeah. Inflation was, was raging. My goal, honestly, Tim, was not to continue my education here. My goal, having well qualified in the accounting profession in India, I really wanted to get exposure to US education for a year or two and go back home. Mm. I'm from a large family and uh, wanted to go back and support the family. But 1982 was, could not uh, get a job. People were getting fired. Uh, inflation was too high. Cost control was difficult for most companies. So I couldn't get a job. 
I'll just share out, out of sheer necessity, I end up in the PhD program because I, I didn't have the money to go back and pay off the loans because the loan sharks would be after me waiting in the airport. Uh, so <laughs> I had to get a job. I had to get something. So I ended up in the PhD program. But once I started in the PhD program, I, I found it to be fascinating. Yeah. So I went on to get my PhD and became a professor uh, in Northwestern University. That's where I wanted to go next is you have, you've done everything. You've worked in academia. You've worked on the buy side, which we're going to get to. You have done so at really interesting times and in really interesting places. And so, again, for those listening, Ramu has worked and lived in Chicago. He just mentioned Northwestern, which is near just outside of Chicago, but also working in the Bay Area, especially during the tech bubble uh, and the, the later stages of it. We're going to talk about that in a moment, hopefully. Working in New York, now working in, in Stanford and Boston for us and teaching in New Orleans, which we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit about in a moment. But making that step into academia and then that first step away from academia, can you talk us through that? Yes. Um, so my, my, my PhD thesis was trying to understand uh, what had seemed, had seemed to me at that point seemed to me an important but a fairly straightforward question to say, when you think of the accounting practices, um, you find that things like R&D and advertising, even today, is actually expensed, even and it's not treated as an asset. Okay, so I asked. A, I was very interested in econometric techniques, and I asked a simple question: If I take a stream of earnings and decompose the earnings into permanent and transitory components, which is using a simple econometric technique. Then I can ask the question, what maps into the permanent component? And interestingly, I found that advertising and R&D actually map into the permanent component of earnings and not to the transitory component of earnings. And I said, gosh, if that's the case, then you should treat it as a permanent component in your balance sheet and not as an expense in the income statement. So that spawned off an interesting set of research for me in my own mind and using econometric techniques. But the thing that was, was always interesting to me was ask the simple question, um, simple questions uh, that matter for capital markets. What I was curious to know is to understand the notion of quality of warnings. You might ask the question, how did you come upon this notion of quality of warnings? This is the year 1988, 87-88. There was, the, you know, what happened in the markets in 87. I was in the University of California, Berkeley, and I was looking through the, it was a Saturday, and I was looking through the library, in the library at some old uh, issues of value line. For those who are listening, it's this, this is this old publication, which was a one pager to talk about company fundamentals on one side and some other details on the other side, a single page value line publication. I looked at the 1950s publication, and actually when you turn the page, the first page was company fundamentals. The second page was quality of earnings analysis. This is true. That happened. People dug into the numbers and understand the question, what really is the quality of earnings? Uh, for example, you can have high earnings for a company, which may not be transitory from a settlement of a lawsuit um, or from, from recognizing for taxes uh, reversals. So those types of things in, was interesting to me. And so I called Baruch. Who was a, was a chair professor in um, in Berkeley at that time, UC Berkeley? He had given me a job offer uh, to join the faculty in UC Berkeley, 
prior uh, prior few months before that which i which i said no to barukanach started thinking we should quantify this quality of warnings concept and come up with a way in which we can find out uh, using accounting signals uh, how we can construct a notion of quality of warnings such so what we did for the next few months um and i went through um thousands of pages of uh, analyst reports because analysts have always at that point in time were seen as uh, spokespeople for the company or executives on, and therefore quality of warnings was was distressed at, at those times uh, according to some critiques um, about analyst reports because a lot of companies there were failures of, uh, of of a lot of companies which had got by and strong by ratings and there was this inherent uh, there was an, an implicit criticism that quality of warnings was not being well, well analyzed by analysts therefore that needed a revival so that's where we got in and said okay let's look at the accounting statements and figure out ways in which we can construct um, a measure of quality of warnings and that's exactly what we, that was our paper yeah. that was actually the first paper that i worked on it's called fundamental information analysis here i'm sitting in boston and giving this uh, we having this discussion the analysis uh, the 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 first uh, the first presentation of the paper um was at a conference in Notre Dame and Krishna Palepu who is the associate dean in Harvard was the discussant for the paper uh this was the working paper at that time and his first comment was that my god why did the accounting profession not write this paper 30 years back and so the paper became an important paper it got published and got presented in a number of papers and i actually used to teach this, this paper in my class it was fascinating so my students went off to wall street many of them and i've always had an interest in 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 the markets and many of them were sitting in morgan stanley or or goldman at the time would call and say professor i'm i'm working on the the report of this company you thought as accounting quality on quality warnings can it help me you know sort of disentangle this company and i always found it an interesting thing to do i finally one of them said said have you ever thought about a career at wall street and here at that time i'd moved from new orleans from tulane over to northwestern and my my having come from india and we just had a, a child at the time and my, we were getting really tired of the chicago winters uh, so my wife said maybe you should think about it so at that time i had two job offers one was in boston yeah. the other was in san francisco with melon and um and my wife said we're going to san francisco I, so, I think that yeah, that's probably a, the right choice for a young family, right? Yeah. So not that's to, how that's how my transition took place. Not uh, to dismiss Boston by any extent. We'll, we'll we'll get back to Boston, the San Francisco experience, and 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 here I think context is key because at least from your profile, it says March nineteen ninety nine. Now I started my career not long before then, and that was right when I was about to start graduate school. And graduate school for me, I was at NYU and. The summer internships between the two years, everybody wanted to work in dot coms. That was the summer of 2000. Everybody wanted to work for free because they wanted equity. And yes. of course, this all before it even got started, really, these summer internships, the summer of 2000. I, by the way, wisely chose to go into fixed income that that summer. That was one of the few yeah. good decisions, as, as well as marrying my wife that I've made in my life. But that was another good one. 
But you started your buy side career and your your career outside of academia at Mellon in San Francisco in March 1999. And the, the theme of earnings quality, I think, is so crucial. Then I, I do wonder now if you see it as paralleling that era in any way where, look, we, we are markets in equities, especially are driven by companies that presumably do have high earnings quality. These big tech names definitely do. This is not pets.com and things like that. But what parallels do you see between that era and now as you were working in, in active equity strategies then? Well, I, that, that's an important, uh, that's a great question and an important one. At that point in time, internet companies were just starting to come uh, come into the uh, public arena, right? A lot of them were private. Uh, Mellon, actually, I chose Mellon instead of BGI at that time, Barclays Global Investors that became BlackRock. I got an offer from them too was because Mellon was actually, the chief investment officer was a PhD in finance, Tom Hazuka, and Charlie Jacklin was a professor in Chicago in finance. So I felt a strong academic connection, and that shop was predominantly predominantly a value shop, you know, understanding cash flows and earnings and so forth. So I felt it was a great fit. So what happened was they were index plus managers in the sense that they took they took they, they deviated from the index weights of the S&P 500 or the Russell 1 or whichever index and they took deviation from that uh, as bets the challenge was that many of these internet companies had such high price multiples and kept going up they underweighted them because there was no cash flows so this was a time period where eyeballs and clicks types of ideas started to pick up and we never understood it. You know, we are sort of academic bent and we said, what, how, how can you fit that into cash flows? We, we didn't understand that. So we were, we were underperforming during 1999. I've been to many, many meetings with clients where I recall one, I won't give you the name of the client, which is, it is a very large client in California. And they said, uh, uh, Tom Ramu, they started the meeting with Tom Ramu, I hope that you're not going to tell me that you outperformed the index last quarter. Uh, because momentum was very strong, right? And I said, uh, I said, I have great news for you. I have greatly underperformed. <laughs> uh, I hope this doesn't mean that you're going to fire us, but uh, here is the reason why you underperformed. We gave us a story. We underperformed massively. And that at that time, they didn't believe in momentum. As you, you and I know, that momentum is not, is not a truly vetted financial economics notion, right? The, the fact that prices go up without cash flows going up it doesn't mean that that should be that that should mean that expected returns are going to be higher yeah. next time. If that anything, the, it should be the opposite, right? It should be the opposite. So, yeah. so we, we didn't, you know, Tom never believed in uh, momentum. So I went up to him and I said, Tom, look, let me sort of start understanding this notion of let's sort of putting together the quality of earnings idea into the model because I was part of the research team, and I said, let momentum is something we don't understand. Let's sort of put aside, you know, let aside. Uh, you know, she makes some changes in the way we do the portfolio construction. So that's when we started introducing the earnings quality notion. And how is this important today? It is relevant today, as you well know, you know, in our own asset management arm um, on the SSGA side, we have a team in the fundamental side that focus predominantly on earnings quality. So earnings quality has become is, is quite important today. In technology companies, though, was different there at that time compared to today. Because at that time, there was no visibility with respect to earnings. Uh, Yahoo, Yahoo was a public company. It came, it came public at a very high mark, a very high uh, index weight. Didn't have much in terms of earnings. But these days, tech, tech companies are different, 
a lot of tech companies have you know phenomenal earnings right? yeah. um, amount of earnings so i think tech companies at that time from the traditional earnings quality notion did not have high quality because they didn't have cash flows to begin with but these days tech companies actually have very very high quality earnings because they do have cash flows they have do good expense control the relationship between earnings and cash flows is fairly high so things have changed somewhat but that's that's when we introduced the earnings quality notion and i do want to say that the badge of honor uh, after for us was the models that i put together actually caught enron 10 months before it blew up ah very good now we we have a de-dollarization paper to talk about but there's one more topic that i thought was really interesting which was the move you made from quant equity into quant fixed income which to my brain never having worked in quant equity to to be fair but it strikes me in what I read, and particularly in, in the derivatives work I've done and thinking about equity vol versus rate vol versus FX vol, it strikes me as a completely different animal. Yes. Would you say it is? And, and what allowed you to make that transition? Uh, I, uh, I was the head of the research center for Deutsche Asset Management. We were managing a trillion dollars. At that time, Enron, as I, as I briefly mentioned, we, we got Enron 10 months before it blew up on the equity side. And I went to the bond guys, which is, uh, you know, bond desk. And I said, we need to get rid of Enron bonds in the index. Then, of course, they did extremely well with the trade. And then we ended up with the core plus type of strategy that we worked on at that time with the fixed. I was on the equity side all along and I did a little bit of asset allocation. So after after the after GFC, uh, I took some time off. I went back to teaching. Actually, I was teaching option theory in Tulane. There was an opportunity to work uh, in the fixed income space in Alliance Bernstein. And when I first spoke to the guys, I, they were interested. They were interested in my background more on the equity side. Then then as they started talking to me a little bit more about my background and in critical thinking and financial economics, uh, they said, "Well." You know, I think you can handle this. And I, I always was very curious to understand what were the drivers of returns in the equity space or the fixed income space, because active management was adding less and less value in the equity space, but it was actually consistently adding value in the fixed income space. So that was a curiosity for me, right? Trying to start to explore that. And during my during during the time when I was between jobs after GFC. I also was the co-editor for the Journal of Investing, um, and I actually ran the special uh, special series on risk parity. Um, so along with Barry Schachter, um, or Barry and I, and I got really interested in fixed income at that point. And so fixed income, there are a few things. One, fixed income managers typically beat the index, where everybody is about the average kind of idea, right? The second is fixed income uh, was, a, was a critical piece of the risk parity uh, thinking, which, which I was curious about. So when the opportunity came about in Alliance Bernstein, I, Doug Peebles was my manager. I, I, you know, Doug and I had a conversation and I said, look, I don't know a whole lot, but I'm extremely curious about that. I know at the, at, the, at the bottom line is financial economics. And at some level, more so in fixed income than in equity, theories with respect to covered interest parity, with respect to rates, uh, the, the way the rate curve works, all of that macro matters a lot. And, I, and um, he took a risk on me. And I have to say, it's probably one of the best things that happened to me in my career. I knew I knew a little bit about fixed income, but I picked it up. And I've, I've, I have to tell you, I've learned so much since I took the role. When I, and, and they made me the head of uh, fixed income risk as well for their book. 
Um, so I did both of those roles. It was uh, it was a fantastic transition for me and one of the most highly educational aspects of my professional career. And and it brought you to us, which is good via SSGA. But now, of course, you're working for State Street, the corporation in thought leadership. And that's where we're really going to kind of do the second half of this chat, because we're also going to bring you to the dark side, the world of currencies. And we've talked about equities, we've talked about fixed income, and now you get the degenerates in the currency space like me to, to, to think about. Currencies have their own set of quant factors, of course, but the paper that you've written in collaboration with some of your colleagues, actually some of my colleagues as well, is on this notion of de-dollarization. And so it's a completely right turn, I think, <laughs> from what we've been discussing so far, but one that I think incorporates a lot of the elements in your background, and which is why I think it's it's so important to have that background. I wanted to see if you could start just with the the two or three main takeaways. This topic of de-dollarization has been discussed with respect to Bitcoin and with respect to reserve dominance perhaps being eroded. It's been discussed with respect to things like the BRICS summit, which we'll, I think, finish with and the notion of other currencies or other countries, sorry, maybe starting to use the dollar less as an invoicing currency. You tackle a lot of these things. Each of it's, it's a really nicely written paper in that it takes six or seven different topics, breaks them down, comes to a conclusion. What do you think the two or three things around de-dollarization that people should think about are? There are a few different things to think about from the de-dollarization notion. And um, to understand where things are today and where they are likely to go, it might be helpful to go back in time to understand how the dollar became the dominant currency in what we note in the paper is three different prongs. When you go back in time, we find that as a result of the depth of the treasury market, which as you well know is important for the currency, the flip side of currency, the treasury market, and because of the fact that we have uh, rule of law, which has been well established uh, in courts, and most importantly, liquidity uh, working very, very well across the different markets. The switch slowly happened away from the British pound to the, to the dollar um, many decades back, and that only grew as um, the dollars, the dollar market, so to speak, broadly speaking, both treasuries and the currencies deepened, so, uh, deepened in a big way. As a result of that, it became the dominant currency for invoicing. Uh, a great example is that I, I use is Turkey. For example, Turkey's exports to the U.S. is probably around 3%, but more than 90% of its invoicing is actually the U.S. dollar. So over time, the dollar has become the dominant currency in invoicing. The second prong is actually going back to the point that I made with respect to history is the depth of the markets. It's become the dominant currency for credit. I originally come from India, as we discussed. A lot of the Indian companies actually come to the U.S. market in order to raise debt because, because of the debt that we have in the market here. That's the second prong. And as a, as a result of it, it's also become the dominant currency in, in reserves. So the, the, the notion of de-dollarization. So the, 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 challenge with, the challenge with having the dollar as the dominant currency is that there is the stickiness in import prices in dollar terms is very high, regardless of the country of export or import, because what happens is that the, the pass-throughs from dollar shops are much more dominant in countries like Turkey than for non-dollar 
on, on the non-dollar currencies. So that we know to be the effect in many of these markets because dollars become such an important part of the fabric of the financial system on the invoicing, on the credit, credit, credit space, shocks that take place in the dollar market impact the local markets in a big way, it passes through. Now, when that takes place, the ability of the local currency to be able to help the rate effect locally is, is, is sort of impacted because it is the, the currency is being pulled away from shocks from dollar, which is not the dominant thing in local markets. The ability, as you well know, from, a, from the currency side, we need, we, we need to have the currency markets to be fluid and to be able to, to, be able to reflect the changes that take place on the trade side in a seamless way so that the adjustment that takes place on the currency side can actually can, can actually do the work of the rate side yeah. so so the, the so it's a long way of saying that there is the stickiness that takes place in the local currency market became more and more because the dollar became more and more entrenched in their local in their own local um, gdp gdp process because of the invoicing side and the credit side right so there is good reason to articulate the de-dollarization de rhetoric because markets are not working as well as they should be because you have a dominant currency impacting things that, that prevents the market from working seamlessly in, in, in their own local terms. So there is good economic reason to think about de-dollarization. But what I do want to, people to know is that it's a hard thing to move out of for a, for a number of reasons. Dollars become such a dominant aspect of invoicing in the markets that it's very hard to replace it, even though there is a desire to do so, and there are good reasons to do so. Same yeah. thing with credit market. So I think the weaponization of the dollar, so to speak, you know, what happened with the Russian Russian reserves during that, that made the topic even more you know, front line and center. When that happened, then this that became become more important. And there was an attempt now, as you well know, this you know many countries are starting to write write the contracts in non-dollar terms. India, for example, has got some contracts. I think in parts of Asia, in non-dollar terms, we have seen. We, I think there was a Bloomberg announcement saying that the I, I I think the Commerce Minister in Saudi Arabia is saying that they are they would be willing to you know look at the contracts in, in non-dollar terms. So the rhetoric, there is good good economic reason to, to discuss this topic. And there is an event that took place which made this topic front and center. Yeah. Now the rhetoric has become even more important. But the so but I do want to say that it will take a very long time to to have this have this um, have this conversation have more legs, so to speak, and have an alternative. Yeah, I, I have so many questions that come out of that. And I wanted to go back to the example you used of Turkey. And I think on the invoicing side of things, that look, that all makes sense. And I think the, the release from, I think it was the BIS the other day, that the Remimbi is now used in something like 3% of turnover speaks to the opportunity for an economy that obviously represents a far greater portion of global GDP and, and an even greater pro proportion of global trade for that to grow. And it, that only makes sense. But I'm thinking especially about the dollarization of liabilities in a lot of these emerging economies. And you mentioned Turkey and, and dollar funding. And 10, yeah, actually 10 years ago, we had the example of the taper tantrum where 
you had the prospect of less easy, not even tighter, but less easy US policy that got transmitted to the rest of the world. The year after that, you had a dollar rally that was as pronounced as we've seen at that time, uh, really since the financial crisis. And that had meaningful impacts on emerging markets who had funded in dollars. Do you get a sense that that sensitivity is any less 10 years on from that? I want to go back a little bit to taper tantrum. Taper tantrum, as you well know, was, was a trigger that took place from Bernanke, as you said, not even tightening. It was just a statement that saying that the the extreme liqu liquefaction of the market that we've been doing is going to be somewhat less. That's all that took place. That was a trigger where both bond markets and equity markets sold off in a massive, massive way, right? I do think that that brought forth the impact of the, the shock that takes place in dollar, how it reverberates across the entire globe. So what, what has happened now so we went back in time and divided the, the time series into two different distinct periods. One is pre-2010 and the one is post-2010. Why did we choose 2010 as the breakpoint? Remember what happened in 2010 is when the liquidification of the market started globally in a big way. And the Bank of there was a Bank of England paper which basically said from a structural from a structural breakpoint, 2010 is the key breakpoint in global finance. We asked a simple question going back to your point. One is that if there is a one standard, devi standard deviation shock in the Fed fund rates, okay, basically that results in a dollar shock. Okay, The Fed fund rate shock is basically a dollar shock that takes place. What happens to emerging market? What we found was that the one standard deviation shock today is twice as impactful as it was in pre-2010. Okay, wow. so equity markets react twice as much as they did before 2000. So dollar shocks that take place, and I used to, when I gave this talk to many of our client base, I used to ask a simple question. Here you are as an equity investor in Indonesia, okay, having worked hard and you put your money in the equity market. Your equity portfolio is impacted because somebody sitting in Washington, D.C. has decided to change the rate. That's exactly what happened. So it's a long way of answering your question. Actually, yeah. I don't think it has gotten less. It's, um, it's fascinating because you do you read about how they've apparently deleveraged, but that that doesn't seem to come through in the work you've done. No, I do think that the importance of the dollar, as we have talked about in so many macro forums, uh, Tim, that you have, I have been, has actually started to become more more, more entrenched now because of the safe haven bid that has yeah. taken after the global shocks that we are seeing. So here we are. Um, you want to de-dollarize, but the rest of the market wants to continue to have a huge bid for the dollar because of global shocks and the concerns about further shocks down the road. So I do think that um, it, is, it, it is important to think about this being not going away, but something you have to work around in your own portfolios to hedging process and so forth. And, and this is, you hit on something that I think is, interesting at the crux of this whole discussion, which the discussion to an extent is being driven by the rise of China. It's being driven by the desire for alternatives because there is now a, a potential dollar risk, as you referred to with Russia. And yet at the same time, you have the dollar's reserve primacy 
Some of it is a blessing for the US because it allows for the liquid capital markets and deep capital markets in, in, in their own securities that you've mentioned, but it comes with costs and the need to run deficits or the need to overspend relative to the rest of the world. And what's interesting to me is some of the loudest voices pushing a de-dollarization line, or at least subtly working towards it or hinting at it, are those with countries with high level of domestic savings. I'm here referring yeah. mostly to China, of course. Wouldn't it be interesting, and I'm kind of stealing a line of thinking from Michael Pettis and Brad Setzer, who I read this on Twitter recently, wouldn't it be in the US's interests, even though they can't say politically, we want a weak dollar, we want maybe less dependence on the dollar, Less dependence on the dollar, in a sense, might help out a lot of the industrial initiatives, say, that the U.S. is looking to pursue, reshoring, putting the focus more back on domestic, um, raising domestic savings, I should say. Do you think there is an element to this where the U.S. itself might actively work towards de-dollarization? Well, I, I, I think you, you hit on something that's the center of, uh, of tension that I think that the tension is that the, the, the hegemonic role of the dollar enables us to have a commanding effect in global finance. To some extent, it is pernicious to local economies, but it does give an extent in an incredible leverage. That, but the side effect of that is there is, there is, there is a deficit, right? And we have to run a deficit economy. And if you look up, think about the markets, the surplus economies, they fall into two categories. One is they are a lot of them are commodity rich countries, whether it be Russia, Saudi Arabia, Australia, uh, or their export oriented economies like China and Switzerland are say are extreme savers like Japan, right? So those economies find it will find it helpful not to have the dollar as the dominant currency. However, from, from the point of view of the US, the weakening of the dollar can potentially help with exports, potentially try to um, bring commerce and, 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 and trade so forth a little bit more on ground as a result of this onshoring and reshoring rhetoric that we have recently seen. What it might, if you push it to the extreme, we may end up losing the hegemonic advantage that, 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 that we have, right? So that's the tension. Now, if we look about the deficit, I mean, the GDP has, the debt to GDP in the US has been growing as you well know. It's around 120% now. It has, it has been only on an increase for the last two and a half decades, right? But it is not so bad currently that we have to think, be too greatly concerned at the moment to say that, okay, our deficit is too high. And partly the reason why the deficit is high is because of the hegemonic role of the dollar. We need to reverse that. I think the concern with respect to the, the deficit being at 120% does not seem to unnerve them too much at the moment. But remember, the deficit has been increased and increased rapidly because of bailouts that we have seen, COVID assistance that we had to provide. And now, with respect to things like reshoring, I mean, the CHIPS Act was $72 billion, yeah. Inflation Protection Act is multiple. Those are all fiscal assistance that's going to increase the debt in the country. So we, I think with productivity were to fall off, and we continue to have the demand for higher fiscal assistance from a number of these initiatives, then I think the GDP, the debt GDP will grow enough to people to say, wait a second, mm. we've got a dollar lever here, and we've got to find ways in which we ourselves help the de-dollarization effort. Just to finish, last question on that. We've had the BRICS summit a couple of weeks ago. 
I think the build-up to it was probably more hyped than the actual output. But the output was interesting in so far as you know this arbitrary acronym that was assigned to five, four or five countries about twenty years ago. They now are running with this as a geopolitical construct. The members are inviting other economies into the fold, as it were. And the two that really stood out were, you mentioned the energy producers as being kind of on the other side of a lot of this, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And these are two core countries, of course, that peg their currency to the dollar. They, they are dollar countries. Yeah. How realistic do you see they're potentially embracing the BRIC concept or joining it with a dollar peg? Or how realistic do you see the possibility of them abandoning those pegs at some point in the next 20 years? There is, you know, having been tied to the dollar is a risk in a number of ways because dollar shocks sort of reverberate within within their own economies and not all of them are going to be helpful. So I think from a diversification of risk viewpoint, they would like to, you know, I think that there is a desire to find ways in which you can start and uh, begin an ecosystem of having other currents, contrast other currencies. Uh, at the end of the day, what is going to drive the de-dollarization rhetoric is the, the true financial economics um, that drive it. I think that I think it's going to be very difficult to move away from the dollar because the flip side of the development of the of an alternative currency is a good bond market. The two alternatives is the renminbi or the euro. Now these two market these two currencies do not have an underlying bond market. There is no euro bond, and there is the the the, the Chinese bond market is not nearly as liquid and it's not that deep. For them to become viable alternative currencies and become viable alternative alternatives to the dollar is a very difficult thing to happen. So as much as the export economies would like to have diversification of the risk from the dollar, and that's part of the discussion that we have heard and seen in, in multiple contexts and something that I've heard myself in our discussion, is they know that's a tough problem. And so, so Mark Carney in 2019, he actually suggested a basket of currencies. He said, let's, let's settle contracts in a basket of liquid currencies. And, you know, you can come up with a, ba- a basket. Now, I think that's a viable alternative to think about, but it also raises the question of this. So his uh, right question of how do you hedge this exposure? Suppose you have a basket of currencies, how do you hedge that? And that's uh, you're making the hedging problem a little bit more complex. So multipolarization as an alternative to dollar dominance has been discussed as well. And maybe that will get some legs. But I do think that even the countries where you're fed to the dollar and you really are tied to the dollar in multiple different ways, whether it be currency, big dollar, their oil contracts, and as much as the diversification of risk they'd like to have, I think it's a tough one to actually make it viable. Very interesting. We'll have to do a follow-up, I think, do a follow-up paper, maybe five, 10 years time, have a follow-up podcast <laughs> when yes. that happens. But I think we are sadly running out of time. There's so much I think we could talk about, Ramu, so we'll definitely have you back. But I do appreciate true thought leadership, I think, in a lot of different areas, not just currencies, but all the other things we discussed. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tim. It was a great opportunity to discuss this. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. 
There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience and research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.